Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a lecture from Jeff Myers from the 1995 Biblical Horizons Conference, and his topic is the development of the Reformed Doctrine of Baptism. And speaking of that conference, you can find the entire conference remastered and together as a collection in the Theopolis app. And there's a link down there in the show notes to sign up for the app, which you can access both via the App Store and the website app.theopolisinstitute.com. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Jeff Myers on the development of the Reformed Doctrine of Baptism. And the title of the lecture is Theodore Beta and the Development of Reformed Doctrine of Infant Baptism. We're going to concentrate on a colloquy, on a conference that happened in Montbelliard in 1586, in the late 16th century. Montbelliard is located just to the east of France, within Germany, and we'll talk about its importance. Let me ask you this question. What do you think about Billy Graham's statement to the survivors of the Oklahoma bombing? Assuring them in his sermon at their funeral, assuring them that the children who died in the bombing were in heaven. R.C. Sproul Jr. didn't like it. He wrote a response in World Magazine, and he charged Billy Graham with teaching justification by youth alone. And then many of the readers of World Magazine did not like it because if you looked at some of the letters that came in the World Magazine, scathing attacks on you intellectual reformed theologians who think you've got it all down pat and can't comfort the parents of these dead children. That issue, the issue of infant salvation... The issue of what to do with our children, what's their status, is still a live issue in the Presbyterian Church. I don't agree with the way R.C. Sproul Jr. handled that issue. And so there's a lot of dissension even within our ranks about that. I could give you examples of men on the floor of Presbytery who are examined as to their doctrine of infant baptism, one of my favorite questions to ask men on the floor of Presbytery is what happens at an infant baptism? Particularly, what happens to the infant during an infant baptism? Whenever I ask that question, usually I get a blank stare. Sometimes I get the answer, nothing. Maybe later something might happen, but nothing happens to the infant. And then we had a man on the floor of Presbytery a few months ago who was being ordained as a counselor in a major church in St. Louis, big church. And one of the questions he was asked on the floor of Presbytery was, how would you counsel, how would you comfort a couple that lost, say, their two-year-old child in an accident? What would you say to them? Tell us. And he said some things, and then the questioner said, Now, I want you to tell me 
what would you tell those parents about their child? Let's assume the child was baptized. And what would you tell the parents? And the man said, well, I'd tell them that if their child was elect, then the child was in heaven. And then the question said, well, can't you give them any more assurance, any more comfort than that? And the man said, no. If the child is elect, he's in heaven. If not, he's not in heaven. And (laughs) that caused a huge discussion within the presbytery that day. These questions are still live issues. And some of these tensions go back, many of them do, to unresolved tensions in the 16th century and developments within Reformed theology concerning the doctrine, the meaning, the significance, the efficacy of infant baptism. Just what does it mean? And what I want to do this morning is engage in what Jim would call, I guess, a little bit of eschatological reasoning. So we look back on the facts, and we try to think about them, we try to understand how the Reformed doctrine of infant baptism developed. And we're going to deal with Theodore Beza and his controversy with Jacob Andrea, who was champion of the Lutheran cause in the late 16th century. We're going to try to analyze this debate at this colloquy and see where Beza makes some deviations from Calvin, which I think were disastrous, and also where Beza developed some ideas in Calvin, which I think Calvin never did fully deal with. But this is a significant issue. Almost no work has been done on this particular topic, that is the development of the doctrine of infant baptism after the Reformers. And one of the reasons is, I think, that Richard Mueller, in his book on Protestant scholasticism, Reformed Protestant scholasticism, Richard Mueller is an excellent scholar in this area. His two or three books on Reformed scholasticism are excellent. He says, Protestant histories have, since the time of Harnock, emphasize the doctrines or doctrinal discussions characteristic of the most pointed dogmatic debates of the church in each particular era, rather than attempting to elicit from the materials of each age an entire body of doctrine. Consequently, you see, we have massive amounts of literature on the Eucharistic debates, on the question of infant baptism, that is the legitimacy of infant baptism, the Reformers in their debate with the Anabaptists, We have almost nothing on these other issues which sometimes are very important to us. For example, what we have in many Reformed historians is a collapsing together of all of the history of infant baptism. It's like everybody just kind of believed what we believed, what we believe today. For example, Schenck, Louis Schenck, in an otherwise excellent work, The Presbyterian Doctrine of Children in the Covenant, published in 1940 by Yale. He collapses together Calvin's Wingley, Bullinger, and the Scottish and English Presbyterians of the 17th century. Collapses them all together when speaking about their baptismal theology with little or no awareness even that there was any development or any change or any difference. And I think what we need to do as Reformed historians and scholars at least is to go back and to do some research to figure out what is happening there. It's very illuminating. Now, let's talk about, then, 
the council or the colloquy at Montbelliard and talk about its context, first of all. It's very important because largely the differences between Lutherans and Reforms are framed, styled at this conference. This is one of the last colloquies that the Lutherans and the Reformed scholars had, really, one of the last official colloquies in this century and indeed in the next century too. So it frames the debate. Largely when we think of the Lutheran doctrine of infant baptism, we think of baptismal regeneration. And when we think of the Reformed doctrine of infant baptism, its meaning and its efficacy, we think of something else besides baptismal regeneration. Well, these kinds of developments go back to the 16th century. Now, let's talk quickly about the context. I'm on Roman numeral 2 in my outline now. And I've got to be careful here because I could get bogged down in this history. I don't want to do it. But I want to give you a little bit of a feel for what's going on in the 16th century. Just as it was impossible for a man in the Middle Ages or the 16th century to imagine what it would be like in the 20th century, as Jim said earlier, so it's almost impossible sometimes for us to think about what life would be like, what the situation would be like in the 16th century. But you have to do it. You have to put yourself in this historical context in order to understand it. So, the immediate context is a flood of refugees coming out of France, Huguenot refugees, Reformed Christians, who are driven out of France. Henry III, in his Treaty of Namur, I have no idea how to pronounce some of these French names, I'll tell you right now. I know German pretty well. I do not know French, so I'm sorry. The Treaty of Namur in 1585 revoked the limited privileges that the Reformed Christians had in France and made it illegal for them to be tolerated in France. Only Catholics would be tolerated in France. You either convert or you leave in six months and you take everything with you. And so droves of Reformed Christians fled. They fled to Germany. They fled to England. They fled to Switzerland. They fled. And many of these refugees ended up in Montbelliard. Montbelliard was very close. It's right on the border. There was already a French-speaking contingent of Reformed Calvinists there. And so they end up there, and they're looking for a place to worship, where they could worship using the French liturgy, using the Calvinistic liturgies. And that raises a problem for the Duke, Duke Frederick, and the Count over the whole area of Württemberg, who is Count Ulrich. And the problem is, what do we do with these Reformed Christians? The reason it's a problem is because at the Diet of Augsburg in 1555, you have the Peace of Augsburg promulgated by the Emperor. And the Peace of Augsburg said, you know this already, it's quius regio eus religio. The religion of the prince is the religion of the subjects. And there were only two religions recognized at the Diet of Augsburg. The two religions are Catholics and 
those who followed the Augsburg Confession, the Lutherans. Now, what that does is that leaves the third category of Reformation Christians in limbo. What is the status of a Calvinist? What is the status of a Reformed Switzerland, one who traces its roots not back to the Augsburg Confession in 1530, but back through Geneva and Switzerland and to John Calvin and Theodore Beza? What's their legal status in the empire? Well, what happened was most of the Reformed Christians could indeed subscribe to the Augsburg Confession. And so that's okay. There's no problem there. The Augsburg Confession was okay. The only article in the Augsburg Confession that gave Reformed Christians trouble was Article 10 on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. I'll talk about that in a minute. So here's the immediate situation. What does this Duke of Montbelliard, Duke Frederick, what does he do about all these Christians here? Does he help them? Does he give them sanctuary? Does he boot them out? Does he require them to all sign the Augsburg Confession so he's legal? He's got the problem of dealing with the emperor. He doesn't want to make waves in the empire. It's a dangerous thing to do. You know, on and on and on. That's the immediate historical context. There's a larger context, too. Throughout this period, you have the development of a Catholic alliance between Philip II of Spain, Henry III of France, the Guise family, G-U-I-S-E, the Guise family, a powerful Catholic family in France, Catherine de Medici and the de Medici family, who was the regent during Henry III's childhood. They're all trying to develop this Catholic League in order to enforce the decrees of the Council of Trent. Remember, Trent met in the middle of the 16th century, the late 1540s, and they had all these decrees, and they wanted to enforce these decrees and to exterminate, basically, the Reformation. Opposite that, you have a Protestant League trying to develop. Henry of Navarre of France, who will later be Henry IV, King of France, Henry de Bourbon, he's reformed. And he is in league with some of the German princes and also with Elizabeth in England, and they're all trying to develop a Protestant league. In fact, Elizabeth is very interested in this. She has spies sent out into the continent at this time. Dr. Lobatus, who is reporting back to her constantly, she is sending 100,000 pounds to Prince Casimir, who's in the Palatinate, that's in Germany, in southern Germany, so that he will send mercenaries into France to try to deal with Henry III and his persecuting policies. You have Henry of Navarre sending his agent, his secret agent, out, the Baron de Clairvon, and he is one of the guys who instigates this colloquy at Montbelliard, because he goes around all the princes trying to raise support for this Protestant League. But you see, part of the problem of getting a Protestant League is, what do we do with Reformed Christians? Because Reformed Christians don't have a franchise in the empire unless they subscribe to the Augsburg Confession. And then there's another problem here because the Augsburg Confession has two versions. The Augsburg Confession, Article 10, has two versions. And the Reformed Christians had no problem with what is called the Versio Variata that Melanchthon wrote later. The Reformed Christians had no problem with that version 
But they do have a problem with the invariata, the original 1530 version of the Augsburg Confession. Melanchthon was favorable to Calvin, was favorable to the Reform. Melanchthon at a conference, another one of these colloquies, at Hagnow and then Regensburg, Melanchthon rewrote basically Article 10 of the Augsburg Confession in order to make it more palatable to Reformed Christians. And that's called the Variata. And in the Variata version of the Augsburg Confession, it reads like this. Well, let's start. For, the original 1530 edition reads like this. This is the whole article. Concerning the Lord's Supper, they teach, they, that is the presenters, those who are making this presentation to Charles V at this imperial diet in 1530. Concerning the Lord's Supper, they teach that the body and blood of Christ very absent at distributor is truly present and distributed to those who eat in the supper. Truly present, very absent at distributor and distributed to those who partake of the supper. Melanchthon changes it, alters it, gives a variant reading in order to nuzzle up to the Reformed in 1541 at another colloquy. That's called the Variata. He changes it, and now it reads in the Variata, instead of truly present and distributed to all those who partake of the Lord's Supper, it reads, Cumpana et vino, with the bread and the wine, very exhibiantor, are truly offered the body and blood of Christ. And the Reformed Christians had no problem with that because they believed that truly the body and blood of Christ was offered through exhibiant or through the sacrament. But they had a problem with the idea that Christ was truly present in and distributed by means of the Lord's Supper. And so there's a sacramental difference right away between the Lutheran and the Reformed. And this was an issue. It's a political issue even. And there's debates about whether Calvin would have approved of this or not. And I can't go into that because I'm already finding myself getting bogged down in the history. I didn't want to do that. But I just want to give you a feel for what's going on here. And so you have a development of these Reformed Lutheran colloquies and conferences all throughout the late in the middle 16th century in order to try to deal with these problems. They're pressing problems. They're not just religious problems. They're political problems. Calvin has this massive correspondence, massive correspondence with Bullinger in Zurich over the Lord's Supper and over the instrumentality of the Lord's Supper and exactly what it means. And if you read this correspondence, you would think it's extremely nitpicky because Calvin insists that the Lord's Supper is truly an instrument through which the Holy Spirit gives to us grace. Bullinger says, no, it's not an instrument, but it's a sign. And yes, God, kind of around and parallel to the sacrament, does indeed distribute grace, but not through it, not through physical means. And this massive uh, correspondence back and forth, which eventually ends up being decided, and they have some kind of agreement in the consensus Tigorinus in 1549, And one of the reasons they're doing this is because they know that they need 
to form a political alliance because the emperor has his armies coming down and he's on their border. And so Calvin and Bullinger are feverishly trying to get this sacramental issue worked out so that they can be united. Because if they can't be united about this, they can't be united politically and militarily. And so all this is wrapped up together in these colloquies. So if you look at your notes, you notice that there are all these colloquies, and I'm not going to describe these. I was going to say something about each of them, but it's just not practical to do so. You'll notice that Jacob Andrea and Theodore Beza are already talking in Frankfurt and in, in Göppingen in 1557, at Worms in 1557. You have the Roman Catholics against those who are followers of the Augsburg Confession. John Calvin, by the way, attends that colloquy as a Lutheran representative defending the Augsburg Confession. The Poissy Colloquy, I may not be pronouncing that right, it's another French town. Andrea versus Beza, again. Poissy Colloquy fails. The issue there is the Lord's Supper, again. And all the questions surrounding the differences between Lutheran and Reformed views of the Lord's Supper, that fails and results. Here's the implication of these kind of things, guys. That fails, that colloquy fails. In 1562, the wars of religion begin in France, which last for 31 years. The wars of religion between Reformed and Roman Catholic as a result of the failure of that colloquy. The Malburn colloquy, Andrea versus Ursinus, who is the author of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Reichstag of 1566, another attempt to unite Lutheran and Reformed, and there the Variata version of the Augsburg Confession is declared to be okay and legal. The German princes then decide that all this debate is getting on their nerves and they're tired of it and they declare a moratorium, which lasts about a month. And this is the big... You wouldn't believe the tomes that are published at this time regarding these debates. It's amazing. People read this stuff, too. The Württemberg crusade for what we would call ubiquitarian Lutheranism begins at this period of time in about the 1570s with Andrea and Chemnitz and John Brenz. Ubiquitarian Lutheranism, what's that? The idea that Christ's body, humanity, can be ubiquitous, that is, everywhere, and that's a problem to the Reformed. The Formula of Concord, 1577. The Formula of Concord seeks to unite all the Lutherans under the Invariata version of the Augsburg Confession. It doesn't quite work in the 16th century. Only a third of the princes signed it. The king of Denmark, who's a Lutheran, gets a copy of it from his sister. A nice leather copy with gold trim and everything. He walks over to the fire and he throws it in. Uh, so there's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of strong feelings about these things in the 16th century. And then the last thing notice here, there's the Harmonia Confessionum Fidei that's written by Beza as a response to the Formula of Concord. And this is a harmony of confessions. And guess what's in that harmony of confessions? The Augsburg Confession. That's right. The Variata form of the Augsburg Confession. So that's kind of a background. This colloquy is part of a long history of these kinds of debates. Now, the colloquy is called on March 22, 1586, and it's called for the purpose of getting the Lutherans and the Reformed together, getting Jacob Andrea 
and Theodore Beza together so that they might possibly, after all these years, come to some kind of an agreement maybe, but especially so that Frederick the Duke and Count Ulrich, the Count of Württemberg, that they can know what to do with these French reformed refugees and so that they can save face before the emperor and do what's legal and try to find out. But there is some hope, maybe, that there might be some kind of agreement reached. As for the collocutors, it's the Lutherans, Jacob Andrea and Lucas Osiander. That's a different Osiander, by the way, than the one that Calvin writes against in his institutes. And on the Swiss dream team, there is Theodore Beza, Anthony Lefay, Abraham Musculus, and Hubner from Bern, and Albury from Luzane. But it doesn't matter who the team was. The debate was between Andrea and Beza. The colloquy was called, and it clearly Andrea is in charge because Duke Frederick and Count Ulrich are both Lutherans. And so the Lutherans control the colloquy. Beza sets the tone and frames the discussion from the start. Beza begins by requesting a notarized record of the colloquy. It's denied. Andrea says, no, if we do that, it'll take too long. You know, we'll have to wait for a scribe to transcribe it all. You know, we need to get the debate going. Now, that was very unfortunate because... Beza then wanted to make sure that nothing was published about this, because you know what happens. It's kind of like the media today. You've got to make sure that what's reported is accurate. Well, almost immediately after the colloquy, Andrea publishes a huge account of the colloquy, and Beza then has to write a huge response, and then Andrea has to write a huge response to Beza's response, and you end up having thousands and thousands of pages all of which, by the way, were sold out within months. These books sold. It's it's amazing. They agreed upon topics of discussion, the Lord's Supper and the person of Christ. But after the discussion and debate on the Lord's Supper and the person of Christ, Andrea adds predestination, baptism, music, statutes and paintings in churches. Beza objects, we didn't come here prepared to talk about these things. Andreas says, tough, these are also things that we need to talk about because they divide us. So music, statues, and paintings in churches were talked about one morning. There's basic agreement. The reform said, you know, we don't like to use these things in our churches, but we don't think there's really any law against them. Then baptism was discussed. And the procedure was, in this colloquy, Andrea and his team would put forth a number of propositions And then the discussion would proceed according to the propositions that Andrea set forth first. Usually what happened is the propositions were handed over, the Reformed had a chance to go away and to develop a response, and then they came back and argued these things. So let's move right into the baptism argument, and I hope that gives you some little bit of help maybe in trying to figure out what's going on here. Beza began by trying to minimize the differences between Lutheran and Reformed on this. Beza began saying, look, these issues are not important to us. We don't want them to divide us. 
If you hold this position on baptism, we may not agree with you, but it shouldn't divide us, which is very interesting. We don't want this to divide us, Beza said. And he tried to minimize the differences, was not able to. The Württemberg theses on baptism are there for you to look at. These are the original theses that were taken back by the reform then in order to develop a response. In other words, these are written by Jacob Andrea, and this is his viewpoint on the matter. Just take a minute to read those, and then I'm going to go right into the summary of the debate, which is the most interesting part of the lecture. Of course, Beza objected that the doctrines contrary to Scripture, and by implication held by the reform, are distortions. All right, now here's how the debate went. And what I'm going to do is, this is hardly available to you anywhere. What I'm going to do is go through the debate, and I'm going to give you basis and Andrea's response and counter-response and all that, and then we're going to evaluate it briefly. So turn to the next page, and I'll summarize all these issues for you. And you pay close attention and do not fall asleep, because this is important. The first issue, the instrumentality of baptism, the instrumental efficacy. What happens during the act of baptism? Does the Holy Spirit use the water of baptism as an instrument of grace and salvation? Andrea, and I quote, For the Holy Spirit works the rebirth in baptism, not without the water, nor through the water without the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through the water. The baptismal water not only signifies, but it is the means ordained by God to produce regeneration. Unquote. Beza. Whoa, no. We teach that adults who have been baptized receive complete baptism. That is, they also receive it in an inner way by true faith, either at the time of their baptism or, most likely, when, by God's grace, faith occurs. Beza is concerned that there be no latent power assigned to the water of baptism. God does not transfer divine power absolutely to physical created things, Beza says. Neither can God the infinite be bound and constrained by finite things. Neither are we going to degenerate back into the ex opera operato view of the Middle Ages, that the sacraments work automatically. You put the coin in and out grace comes. Andrea responds, We don't assign any latent power to the water, absolutely. One of Luther's catechism questions describes the benefits of baptism. How can water do such great things? That's the small catechism. The answer is, it's not the water indeed that does them, but the word of God which is with the water, and faith which trusts such a word of God in the water. For without the word of God, the water is simple water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is baptism. That is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. The difference between Beza and Andrea on this point, the point of the efficacy of baptism, is a contrast between baptism as an instrumental, sacramental means of regeneration and adoption, the Lutheran view at this point, 
And baptism as a sign and seal of the regeneration and adoption yet to be possessed in the future by the one baptized. That is very clearly at this stage Bayes' position. Because only adults complete their baptism when they believe, when the Holy Spirit works faith in them. The second issue, the temporal relationship between the sign and the reality. Beza responds to Andrea's defense of the instrumentality of baptism by making a distinction between external baptism and internal baptism. Just as in the Lord's Supper, there's an external eating, which everybody does, and an internal eating, which only the elect partake of. So in baptism... And I quote Beza, Those who truly believe and are elected to eternal life are not only washed and sprinkled with water, but they are also sprinkled in an inner way by the blood of Christ, something that does not happen to the unbelieving. And so Beza says we must be careful not to bind the work of the Holy Spirit to the water. True inner baptism may occur and often does occur later in the life of the baptized one when he matures and he is able to believe. Andrea responds by insisting that the visible and invisible in baptism may be distinguished but never separated in our evaluations of what happens during baptism. Bates' position, Andrea says, evacuates the sacrament of any power and significance and makes it into a naked sign a nuda signa, and those be fighting words to Theodore Beza. I do not, Beza says, reduce it to a naked sign. The benefits are truly offered. Even if the benefits of infant baptism, that is external infant baptism, may only be appropriated through the power of the Spirit at a later time in life, nevertheless it's truly offered, even if the infant cannot appropriate it. According to Beza, baptism is not activated until later in life. And this becomes actually a reformed principle. Calvin says this too. Beza states it very strongly. The efficacy of the sacrament is not tied to the time of its administration. But you see, this can mean two things. It can mean either that the sacrament continues to be efficacious and powerful and effective from the time of infancy all through your life. Or it can mean, as Beza understands it to mean, that the power and efficacy of the sacrament can lie dormant for many years until the person matures enough to be able to exercise faith. The argument then turns to the necessity of faith for salvation. Beza does indeed grasp the close connection between the sacrament and the word. The sacrament is a visible word which communicates the promise of salvation. The word and the sacraments are instruments by which God communicates his word. But each word and sacrament needs to be received by faith. If they're going to be effectual in communicating what they offer, faith must grasp the promise and the reality offered both in word and sacrament. And the key here is Beza's conception of faith. Beza repeatedly says that water baptism offers 
that which is the reality signifies, the race significatum. It really offers it, but it does not guarantee it's confirming. Because the person baptized must possess the required inner disposition. I'm quoting now. Namely, faith. Andrea. Well, I don't disagree with that, basically. Yes, obviously, we all believe as Reformation Christians that justification is by faith alone. We believe in the instrumental necessity of faith for salvation. Baptism sine fide does not save without faith. Does not save. The Augsburg Confession says this. Luther in his larger catechism says this very, very strongly. Baptism without faith has no power to save. I could read this from Luther. I'm not going to do it. Andrea refers to this to make the point. This is not the point of contention, you see, Andrea says. Beza, you and I agree on this. We agree that faith is instrumental. The difference is, what are our conceptions of faith? The real difference comes to light when we consider the meaning and the efficacy of infant baptism and whether infants can have faith or not. So the question turns to, the debate turns to the question of the fides infantum, that is the faith of infants. If there is such a thing as the faith of infants. We're on number four in the summary. Beza insists that it is, quote, absurd, unquote, to say that infants are regenerated when or before they are baptized since their understanding, their cognitio, is not able to receive the word of God, is not able to receive the reality offered through the word and sacrament. They are not able to apprehend Christ through faith. Beza repudiates any notion of fides infantum, of infant faith. He insists that infants cannot be regenerated at baptism or before baptism. Infants are unable to apprehend Christ by faith. That is a quote. I could read the Latin for you. It's very strong. Beza argues that even though it's impossible for infants to possess faith, Yet it's necessary to baptize them because of God's command. The baptized child must actively and intelligently respond to the promise offered in the word and sacrament. Baptism, therefore, can never be an absolute assurance of a child's salvation, but only a probable sign. A probable sign. At one point, Beza asked Andrea a question that was meant to force Andrea to admit that the reception of the reality and the sign could in fact be separated temporally. He asked Andrea, was Cornelius in Acts 10 adopted by God prior to his ritual baptism? Andrea responded, he certainly was. Beza thought he got him. Andrea said, wait a minute. You are confusing the capabilities of adults and infants. Adults are indeed capable of hearing the word, responding in faith, receiving justification prior to baptism. But infants are not capable of that kind of response to the external word of God. Andrea insisted that it is an Anabaptist error to insist 
that a developed intellect is necessary in order to exercise faith. Faith is not dependent, Andrea argues, on an active adult intellect. And he cites John the Baptist who leaps in his mother's womb. And he cites other examples of Jesus receiving infants that were carried to him as examples, scriptural examples. Beza then restates his conviction that faith is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to be savingly received. Therefore, if an infant is baptized externally without the appropriate interior disposition, then it receives the water only without the corresponding internal operations of the Spirit. Infants cannot exercise the proper interior disposition. Note the language. They cannot exercise the proper interior disposition because they are incapable of understanding preaching. So Beza says. And Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. And this faith presupposes knowledge of what is preached and the ability to apprehend and believe it. So it is true that infants are offered the reality that baptism signifies. Nevertheless, and this is a quote from Beza, the infant does not have a hand to grasp the reality. It has no receptivity to the word. It is therefore absurd to say that infants receive salvation by means of baptism. Andrea responds with a defense of a fides infantum. He says infants are capable of faith. He cites John the baptizer again. He cites Mark 16.8, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Without faith, it's impossible to be saved, Andrea says. If infants cannot have faith, they cannot be saved. Andrea says God is able to supply the necessary faith for infants. Beza responds, infants cannot have faith. They can only have the seed or the root of faith. Baptism is not useless for children, though. However impossible it is for them to receive its benefits. Baptism is rendered effective when the child matures, hears the word, even the word in memory, and believes. Why then do we baptize infants, since infants cannot have faith? According to Beza, baptism is rightly administered because of the faith of the parents and the supplemental faith of the church. At one point, Beza affirmed that many thousands of baptized children are never regenerated and perish eternally. Beza wrote in the margin of his account, Horrenda Vox, Horrible Voice. It is horrible to hear, Beza says, that thousands of baptized, whether children or adults, before they have done good or evil, are not regenerated, but damned in spite of the sacrament. Now, Beza is playing up to his audience a little bit here. Uh, no, excuse me, Andrea is playing up to his audience. He did that often in order to turn the audience against Beza. There's a little bit of ad hominem argument throughout here, or argumentum ad misericordium, you know, appeal to the pity of the masses. That happens a lot. But nevertheless, Beza's doctrine is 
pretty stark. You know, I wonder where you're at with that. But let's continue on. So what then is the status of a baptized baby? What then is the status of a baptized baby? After Andrea's emotional argument here about the horror of what Beza was saying, Beza made a very telling concession, which he didn't develop, but almost seemed to be just a concession made because of Andrea's comments. He admitted that infants probably receive the forgiveness of original sins and the fruits of adoption when baptized. But they only retain these gifts if they do not despise them when they grow up. So that baptized children are probably God's children. That's the word he used, probably. At the end of the debate on baptism, Beza said that the faith of the parents and the faith of the church provided some help. One could say that probably such children, baptized children, will be added to the number of the children of God. But even notice there a future reference, a future tense. Probably they will be added to the number of the children of God. Well then, what about baptism as a sign and seal of God's work in our life? What about baptism as consolation and assurance of salvation? At the summation of the dispute over baptism, Andrea rehearsed his arguments again. And one of the things he brought up at the end, which was then debated, was this leaves parents without any assurance with regard to their children's adoption. There should be no doubt, Andreas says, that if a child is baptized, it is loved and adopted by God. The word probably should never enter into the discussion. Beza responded, Assurance comes when one feels the Holy Spirit's motion. Such a one should have no doubt about one's election. As for judging others, it's ultimately impossible. One cannot judge another, or know for certain whether the person is elect or reprobate. There are apparently godly people like Simon and Acts who are eventually shown to be reprobate. There are notorious sinners who at the last minute are regenerated. No one can know the heart of another. One's own heart and the motions of desire for God, this alone can comfort one in time of doubt and uncertainty. Beza says. Andrea responds. What if one doesn't feel such emotion or desire? Beza. Quote. Then one must be a watcher waiting for the dawn. In the middle of the night there's no sign of dawn. All is dark. But one hopes and the hope is not the sea because the sun of justice will certainly rise. When it does, one feels its rays, the motions of the Holy Spirit. Andrea, that's nice and poetic, but it doesn't deal adequately with the power of doubt. Interior movements are too insecure. Counseling others to rest their assurance on inward feelings will lead miserably to utter despair. The only basis for consolation and assurance in times of doubt and inner turmoil is the reality conferred by the word and sacrament. Again, Andre accuses Beza of believing in a sacrament that is a nudis signa, a naked sign. It loses its trustworthiness, Andrea says. 
On Bayes' view, it only means that we are probably God's children. It has no force, no ability to seal to our conscience, to strengthen the Christian in times of dangerous temptation. If baptism is not the event wherein one is elected, how does one ever know that he is a child of God? Andrea goes on, quote, According to your teaching, Talking to Beza, according to your teaching, a troubled conscience cannot seek or find comfort in holy baptism. For you teach that it is not a certain sign of adoption in all who are baptized, but only in the elect. Therefore, by what means can a troubled conscience be consoled? Andreas cites David as evidence of baptism's ability to strengthen and console. It was David's circumcision that gave him the strength to fight, remember. When David stood before Goliath, he called Goliath an uncircumcised heathen. And he drew strength from the fact that he was circumcised. Beza responds with an inner, out, external, internal distinction. And I'll quote Beza. Therefore I say, to those who are troubled and in despair, you should not doubt the grace of God. Have you not discovered in yourselves feelings such as these? That you regret your sin, that you set your trust upon Christ, that you desire to live a holy life, to be patient in adversity, that you desire to reach the kingdom of heaven of the eternal Son of God. Such feelings are found only in those who are the children of God. Beza says that the elect can be confident of their gracious status by virtue of certain movements, motus, within, such as regret and a desire to live a holy life. Andrea responds again and says, hold on. This search for inner assurance is futile since Satan is a master of undermining fragile consciences. What if one lacks these feelings, Mr. Beza? What then should he trust? Beza has no answer to that. The last issue that's discussed by the men is the issue of emergency baptism. And emergency baptism is a controversy in the 16th century between the Lutheran and the Reformed on whether midwives can baptize children that are born that are obviously not going to live for but a few hours. And the Reformed say no. It's a matter of church order. Women should not be baptizing, and it's not good order. And also, God is able to save the infant without baptism. And for the Lutheran, Lutherans, they say, well, that's all true, but the parents ought to have the comfort of baptism. I'm not going to go into that argument. It's not necessary for what I'm trying to do here. I can basically read these and just say a few things. I don't need to be elaborate on evaluation. Let's evaluate this. Let's evaluate Beza. By the way, I'm summarizing just a lot of stuff, and I've tried my best not to caricature either side. First of all, Beza is moving away from Calvin's strong instrumental understanding of the sacraments. I think that much is clear, at least. In fact, Brian Garish who's a Calvin scholar out of University of Chicago, an excellent Calvin scholar, especially on this subject. He notes that when Beza is editing and collecting 
Calvin's writings, Beza is the official collector and editor of Calvin's writings, that he actually censors some comments and does not publish some comments, many comments in Calvin's correspondence regarding the Lutheran position on the sacraments because Beza thought that Calvin was just giving the Lutherans too much on this idea of sacramental instrumentality. There's some movement away. If you listen carefully, you could note that. To prove that, I'd have to go back and do a bunch of Calvin work for you. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to state it. Secondly, the specter of medieval ex opera operato, the idea that the sacraments work automatically, constantly spooks Reformed theology. Reformed theologians and Beza, I didn't really bring this out, but all through this debate, are so scared of the idea that anything actually happens at the baptism, and they associate that with the medieval doctrine of ex opera operato. And I think that's just unhelpful. I don't think we need to be afraid to say that something actually happens at baptism. When I baptize a child, God enters into covenant with the child, with the infant. That happens. It happens in a special way. The covenant, or let's put it this way, if we want to put it in more traditional terms, the covenant is sealed and sacramentally administered and confirmed to that child right there when I pour the water and say, in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, something happens. And furthermore, it's not a medieval doctrine to say that now we count the child as a Christian and we are assured of the infant's salvation. If that infant dies, the infant goes to heaven. We believe it. Yes. The sacrament of baptism is sufficient for evaluating an infant as to their salvation. Now, the sacrament of baptism is not sufficient if I'm going to evaluate an adult as to his salvation. Other factors come into play, how he has maturely responded to that baptism. But the sacrament of baptism is sufficient. Well, three. There's a shift from Calvin to Beza that baptism in Calvin is a sign of regeneration and adoption already possessed by the infant. Calvin is very clear about this. We baptize our infants because they're born within the sphere of the church, and Calvin uses all kinds of language to suggest that they are adopted, they are regenerated, that's why we baptize them. Bates has shifts. We baptize our infants because it's a sign of future regeneration and adoption. That one day we hope they will be adopted. And this is the language that we find in Westminster Confession. They're baptized, their engagement to be the Lord's. Now, that's a shift from Calvin. There's contrast between Beza and Calvin's view of the Fides Infantum. Calvin embraces the idea that God can and does mysteriously work faith in infants. I can show you the references. I'm not going to do it. I've got them here. I can copy them for you if you want. Calvin it says it's a mystery to him, but surely God works faith in infants according to their capacity. Beza won't have that because... Number five, Beza's desire to maintain the relation of natural faculties to supernatural gifts. That becomes a reformed principle, which I think is distorted. If we really understand that principle, then we're not going to insist that infants have adult faith before they're saved. What we would do is we would say that infants must have an infant faith. Children must have a childlike faith. Adolescents must have an adolescent-like faith. 
adults must have an adult thing. That really is maintaining the relation of natural faculties as supernatural gifts, not insisting that a child doesn't have adult intellectual capabilities and can articulate in articulated speech what he believes, therefore he can't be saved. I have a problem with that. Well, sixthly, Beza makes a dangerous move inwards. How do I know I'm elect? By virtue of certain characteristic inner motions of the soul. Now, we could tie in with Gary North's lecture. Really, the experience thing doesn't go back to the 1720s and Jonathan Edwards. It goes back to Theodore Beza. Calvin doesn't do this. Calvin doesn't do this like Beza does. Calvin says we should look back to our baptism and find comfort and assurance. And Beza doesn't seem to be able to do this. And this is the beginning. Of course, you know Calvin is communicated, is transmitted to the English Puritans by means of Beza. And this becomes very important to the English Puritans, his inner motions. So it's not just the 1720s. It goes all the way back, I think, to Beza. And I've not seen this anymore, but I was convinced of this reading through some of this stuff. And seventh, the presuppositional place that election plays in Beza's formulations. The covenantal ecclesiastical perspective remains untapped. Notice there's no discussion on Beza's part about the covenant. There's a lot of work being done at this time in the 16th century on the covenant. Basin never seems to relate it to baptism. And so what I would say is there are resources within Reformed theology, namely the covenant, that are not brought to bear on this issue. And therefore you get these tensions and these dichotomies in Basin, which are intolerable to me, but which I think a good, healthy doctrine of the covenant could effectively help us with. Well, the consequences of the colloquy... Support for the French was partially achieved, but there is this intransigence of Lutheran and Reformed theology that seems to take real firm root here, beginning at Montbelliard. And they move farther and farther apart on this question of infant baptism. So now today, it's very common for people to characterize Lutherans one way and reform another, and yet... And so it's just not helpful. There are lots of good things we could learn from our Lutheran brothers and lots of good things they could learn from us. And lastly, Bayes' doctrine of infant baptism does take center stage, I think, in Reformed theology, especially as it's transmitted and transformed by the English Puritans. The Formula of Concord. Formula of Concord. That's the 1577 document that is an attempt to unite the Lutherans. All right, questions? <laughs> yes? This is a but I think that uh, what we did today is the kind of thing we did last night. In other words, we originally came to talk about the Trinity to help with the errors that we had to do later on bring up a model. And before we Well, now I haven't outlined... <laughs> what I think would be a normative doctrine of infant baptism here. All I've done is given you a historical sketch, and you got all the problems there. You're asking me now my opinion about that. Well, yeah, I think that doing theology from the perspective of election and regeneration is valid. There's something valid about it. But it's become 
the only thing, only game that's played has become the only thing showing these days. So, Mickey? One thing I really think is that some of our theology is formed. But you see, you really wanted to follow that through, then we'd have to do that with everybody. I mean, with every single person, we couldn't give assurance to anybody that anybody's saved because we're just dealing with externals. Even a profession of faith is no guarantee that there's regeneration. So as a pastor, what am I left with in looking at it from the perspective of election regeneration? I'm left with the most I can say is that probably God loves you. Probably God forgives your sin. But you see, you're going to have to turn inward and find these motions of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not ready to reduce it to that kind of individualism. I think there's something to be said for the covenantal perspective where there are external objective signs and assurances that people are. There are external signs, there are external testimonies that give us the assurance of our salvation. God has ordained that baptism and the Lord's Supper and membership in the church ought to comfort and assure us that he loves us and that we're his children. Not probably, but absolutely. As long as all things considered. You see, for adults, there are other factors. You must respond to your baptism and embrace it by faith and embrace God's love and Jesus Christ offered there. It's not baptism alone. I was at a funeral recently. I won't mention the denomination, but where the priest said, and I I knew the man was living outside the church for years and years, repudiated Christ, but the man said something in the ritual, because you were baptized in holy baptism, therefore you are now received into eternal rest, into God's heaven. Well, that's not enough for an adult. I mean, I'm not going to judge an adult as a believer just because he was baptized as an infant. Other external factors come into play. But for an infant that's been baptized, I believe that's sufficient for us. Yes? You know, as you were going through the summer debate, it seems like it was almost in the middle way. Well, the question boils down to, if I were to draw this out some more, is what is faith? In the classical threefold definition of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust, well, now we narrow it down to what is knowledge? What does it mean to have cognitio? What does that mean? Basis seems to say it means that you're able to articulate somehow intellectually what you believe and to hear the external word of God. Whereas I would say, I don't know, I want to rationalize it so much. I would say that an infant, you know, just recently Jeffrey in the womb of my wife, my youngest daughter would talk to him all the time. And there was obviously a knowledge there. This was his sister or somebody important. And that after he came out, after he was born, he would always turn and recognize Julie. That was a knowledge. And also the child knows his mother. He knows his father in the first few weeks. He knows me. He knows I'm daddy. He knows you're not. That's knowledge. And if a child can have that kind of knowledge, then a child can also know his heavenly father. An infant can. Yes, sir. Well, that's one of the questions. What is the relationship between infant baptism and election? 
I like Andrea's response at one point to say that the event of infant baptism is the election of the child according to our evaluation. Now, our evaluations may need to be adjusted as time goes on because we only know the elect of God, again, through outward means. But I think with regard to a child, that is the event of his election according to our evaluation. And beyond that, we cannot go. We can't go any farther than that. We don't know. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. What is the status? And I assume you're talking about a child born to parents, one or both of whom are believers within the church. Well, I would say with Calvin that the fact that that child was not able to be baptized should not hinder us from making a judgment that God is able to save that child apart from baptism in an extraordinary way, which is mysterious to us. Let's see if I have... I have a quote from Calvin that has to do with that. I mean, the promise is to you and to your children, and even to your stillborn children, to your miscarriages. I think that's the way I would interpret it, even though we haven't been able to apply the sign and seal of the promise. Nevertheless, I would hope and I would insist that the promise is valid. Well, that's again, that's a, that would be a further comfort and help for us to know that. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah, that's right. Sure, certainly. And you, you would think that Beza, of all people, predestinarian that he is, and believer in the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, would say that God is able to make those who are not able, able. And yet there is this insistence on maintaining the relation between natural faculties and supernatural gifts, which I think sometimes gets him in trouble. And that is a reform principle, and it becomes in the English Puritans the primacy of the intellect. I have no idea. Maybe somebody else does. Yes, ma'am. I'm saying that in the 16th century, and as things develop, that the covenantal perspective was not tapped into like it should have been. And we're still dealing with that issue. And I don't feel comfortable because, you know, it's, I know all these other questions are raised about the theology of infant baptism and infant salvation and all that. I was trying to give more of a historical lecture, but I know it raises all these issues. And I feel like if I was going to answer all these questions, I'd have to go back and start opening the Bible and showing you from the Scripture what the Scripture teaches on this. And I haven't done that, so I feel real uncomfortable about that. Peter? Yeah, that's definitely true. One example. Besa is what we would call a reformed scholastic. He's very interested in the schoolmen. He uses many of their 
techniques and lots of their logic. And you have during this time a redevelopment, which I don't think is necessarily bad, but a redevelopment of an interest in Aristotle and all the same things that really led to the medieval crisis. And so, yeah, there is this kind of kind of thing going on. Beyond that, I'm not sure. We'd have to outline what the doctrine of baptism was in the Middle Ages, and it was multiple. The Franciscans held one doctrine, and Dominicans held another. Yeah, yeah. Causality, yeah. And we're looking also at men atomistically, individually, and not in terms of community and church. And Yeah. But I've done anything on it. Okay, all right, I've gone over and under and long enough, so thank you for your patience. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.